Amen. Well, good morning. It is good to see you all. It is good to be able to worship with you all. Uh, I am thankful to God's grace that I am not the only person who ever gets tongue-tied up here. Um, but I felt really good to say, is he still standing behind me? Yes, he is. There he goes. All right. So that was fantastic. Uh, let's uh, use this as justification as to why we need to be bringing Pastor Corey apple pies uh, to hopefully clear head, clear heart, and to uh, deliver uh, quick announcements uh, clearly. Uh, but again, thankful by God's grace for the power that has been given to us through the power of decrees. And I am forever and always grateful to Forrest for teaching us that. And so the opportunity to continue to keep that in front of our people is a joyous opportunity that I will uh, continue to uh, present before you and continue to watch Forrest long suffer um, as we continue to come back to that. Amen and praise the Lord. Well, we are back in 2 Peter this morning. Uh, we're actually beginning to wrap up Peter's second letter to the church. Uh, we'll uh, be in 2 Peter chapter 3 today and next week. And uh, we will then wrap up 2 Peter at that point, And then we will begin to look into our Advent season. Now, as a reminder, this letter has really been a reminder of itself to all of us of what it means to truly know uh, the one true God and what it is that we are now called to never forget about the true God and the saving faith that we now have in Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Now, as we have seen over the past couple weeks, as we walk through Second Peter chapter 2 together, we also were reminded uh, about the false teachers. We were reminded about how they look. Uh, how to spot them, uh, but then uh, equally important to all that, we learned about the impending judgment that now awaits false teachers and those who then follow false teachers. So this morning, by God's grace, uh, Peter now turns his attention to uh, really coming back to encouraging the body of believers, which is what we saw him do in Second Peter chapter 1, and he ultimately reminds them of the hope that is to come. So this message this morning in Second Peter chapter 3 is very similar to what it is that Peter has already written about in 2 Peter chapter 1. Now again, we have been talking week after week after week about how repetition is a good thing. And so here in 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 1, we are going to see Peter jump back into uh, reminding the believers and, and calling to repetition for the purpose of, of really burning into the brains and the hearts of the believers uh, who Jesus Christ is and what it is that Christ has done. And so Peter's goal again is going to be very simple for us this morning. His goal is for all the believers to hold fast to the hope that is now found in the promise of Jesus Christ's return, especially in the face of a world that continues to mock and scoff at the truth of the resurrection. You see, Peter wanted the church to hold on to what Jesus has already said when he told the believers that he was coming back. We saw this played out in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, and again in Acts chapter 1, right at the ascension. I mean, I think one of the best ways we can think about what Jesus said to the believers is very similar uh, to a cultural icon moment or an iconic moment that we uh, should probably all know about in our society. I imagine that many of us are movie goers, and I imagine many of us have probably seen or known a movie uh, with the actor Arnold Schwarzenegger in it, but the movie I'm thinking of is a popular classic that came out in 1984 called The Terminator. And we probably remember one of the most iconic lines from that movie was when Arnold Schwarzenegger as The Terminator said... 
and you all got the voice perfectly. Now I'm going to go ahead and tell you the truth about Arnold Schwarzenegger. You see, he said that movie in that line, and I don't know if you were paying attention, but they actually made six more Terminator movies, and Arnold Schwarzenegger was true to his word as he appeared in each of those six movies. Now, I am not attempting to draw a comparison between the savior of the world and a Hollywood actor. However, if a character of a movie can say it and it be true, then how much more can we trust the Son of God, when he literally says the same thing. But now here's the difference. When Jesus Christ returns, because, oh, by the way, he said that he would be back. He is going to come as the great warrior. He is going to come as the King of Kings. He's going to come as the Lord of Lords. And when he returns, not if, but when, he will destroy the world as we know it. He will bring about final judgment against those who have opposed him. And he will bring justice to those who have been justified in him. So jumping into our text this morning, we're going to see Peter literally remind the church of that very same word as he says to the church this morning, never forget that Jesus is coming back. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I would encourage you to join me now in 2 Peter chapter 3, and we will begin reading in verse 1. And if you can, and you are able, and you have found your place in the Word, I would invite you now to stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God. Now again, this is Peter writing in his letter, 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Peter writes, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of this coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Now, before we jump into our text this morning, can we just pause and reflect over what it is that we just read here in 2 Peter chapter 3 in these first 10 verses? I mean, can we just 
pause and admire for a moment God's sovereignty? I mean, just think about it. God knew that his timing was perfect. But God also knew that in the minds and the hearts of feeble, sinful man, that we would never even come close to grasping or understanding God's timing. And so we would look to God, speaking of the second coming of Christ, and say, why does Jesus tarry? And so God knew that the longer Jesus tarries, the greater chance that his followers would become discouraged. God and his sovereignty knew that the more discouraged the believers would become, the more likely that they would fall prey to some sort of false teaching. God knew that the longer this slippery slope continues, the likelier more and more believers would join with the false teachers in scoffing at the notion that one day Jesus Christ would return. And so God and his sovereignty in knowing all this, which by the way, we're going to get a little bit later in our passage and we're going to talk a little bit more about God's sovereignty. But know this, God in his sovereignty, knowing all these things would happen, would give clarity and wisdom to Peter. And it would be God who would give us this passage to help us as believers in Christ navigate the temptation of missing out on the doctrine of the second coming. It would be God who would use Peter to to then speak this reminder over the church with great tenderness and with great care. That is the sovereignty of God at work. But then notice this about Peter. Peter, in his own words, as given by the grace of God for the glory of God, would reveal his care when he refers to the church as beloved, or as some translations say, dear friends. Now, this was a term that was used throughout uh, chapter 3. We've already seen it twice in our passage today. We're going to see it again. And what Peter is describing is literally meant to show a heartfelt affection for the people that he is writing to. A better way to think of the word beloved this morning would be to think of it in terms of a a parent referring to their child. Or perhaps a mourner speaking about a loved one who has passed. Maybe another way to think about this word today is is a couple expressing their unyielding loyalty to one another. Either way, Peter reveals his heart for the readers and thus reveals his heart for the church. Peter loved the church. Peter loved the people. It was Michael Green who says at this point, he says that Peter returns from harrying the heretics in chapter 2 to now encouraging the faithful. The vehemence of his attacks in the last chapter and the repetition of his reminders here alike spring from a pastoral heart of love towards his flock. So Peter, out of his own love for the church, out of his deep desire that we would never lose our conviction that Jesus Christ will one day come back, now answers the mocking scoffers and reveals how it is God who now speaks of the return of Christ. And so the question that Peter is going to answer for us today is this, how can we know that we know Jesus Christ is coming back? And Peter's going to give us three answers this morning to how we can know. 
Peter first begins in verses 1 and 2, and he tells us that we can know that Jesus Christ is coming back because God's word says that Jesus is coming back. In other words, Peter reveals his immediate concern that the believers were beginning to loosen their grip on the truth that Jesus Christ was coming back. So these verses are now filled with the importance of remembering. Notice how Peter uses phrases like the second letter and by way of a reminder in order to drive his conviction that the church should remember and recall the promise of Christ's return. Now, Peter has already spoken about this in his first chapter of 2 Peter, and he's already referred to it again in his first letter going back to 1 Peter. And so Peter is telling us that the truth of the return of Christ cannot be stated enough. You see, we live in a day and a time where we now prize gaining new knowledge. We prize gaining new knowledge about our faith. We prize discovering new ways to serve the Lord. We prize discovering old books that are being uh, read in new ways. You see, even as believers in Christ, we are constantly looking for something new. However, Peter tells us as believers... Even we need to be reminded of the basic truths that we already know and the truths that we already take for granted. In fact, it was Douglas Moo who wrote about this point. He said that while the gospel is still embedded in the database of our minds, it can cease to have an an active influence over us. Christian, hear the words of Peter in these first two verses. We cannot lose sight of the hope found in the return of Jesus Christ. Why? Because that is what the enemy wants from us. So Peter opens by addressing why we need to be reminded at all. You see, Peter recognized that it was possible for believers to fall away in their belief of Christ's return as they continue to wait out and hear the scoffers continue to mock this truth. In fact, Peter says, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. You see, Peter didn't just want uh, the church to know this truth and ultimately be reminded of this truth. Rather, Peter wanted the church to live in light of the return of Jesus Christ and to now apply this truth to every part of their daily lives. Notice what Peter is calling the church to do. He's saying to the church to think biblically in every aspect of your lives. I love what Thomas Schreiner says about this first point in the first verse. He says, Biblical thinking reminders grip the whole person so that we are possessed again by the gospel and its truth, so that we are energized to live for the glory of God. Now, Peter continues in his text, and he points back to what God's word has now said about the second coming. In fact, in verse 2, he writes that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Now, notice here that Peter's reaching back to what he has already said back in 2 Peter chapter 1 when he speaks of the teachings of of the apostles and how they now accurately represent the words of Jesus Christ. Remember, it was in 2 Peter chapter 1 that Peter tells us we can trust the apostles and what it is they say to be true about Jesus. At the same time, he also told us that we can trust what is said in the word of God because it's in the word of God that we now find authority. 
So when Peter reminds us of this again in verse 2 of 2 Peter chapter 3, this word is now a reminder for the church that we can be confident in what the Scriptures say about the Lord's return. So what does Scripture say about the Lord's return? Well, if you look at the Old Testament, the Old Testament speaks repeatedly about the end of history. It speaks repeatedly about the day of judgment and about God's great salvation. You see these words in Isaiah 13, Isaiah 24, Isaiah 34, Isaiah 51, Isaiah 66, Ezekiel chapter 30, Daniel chapter 7, Joel chapter 2, Micah chapter 1, Zephaniah chapter 1, Zechariah chapter 14, and Malachi chapter 4. And that's just scratching the surface. Some would argue, well, we need more than the Old Testament. Well, okay, well, what about the Gospels? Even Jesus himself addressed the day of judgment and the end of history and God's great salvation. He speaks of it in Matthew chapter 16, Matthew chapter 24, chapter 25, and chapter 26. He says it again in Mark chapter 13 and Luke chapter 12, just to name a few passages. But if that weren't enough, notice again the authority of the word of God as it speaks of the day of judgment and it speaks of God's great salvation as we continue to move further into the New Testament. Just to spare you all the passages, 23 of the 27 books of the New Testament explicitly reference Jesus' return. Two other books, two other letters actually allude to it. In fact, if you were reading through the New Testament, you would notice that only Philemon and 3 John don't ever mention it. So out of the 260 chapters in the New Testament, Jesus' apostles refer to his second coming about 300 times. So what is Peter's point? If the apostles can be trusted and the word of God contains and has the authority of God, we can now know that since the Bible declares the return of Jesus Christ over and over and over again, we can believe it because the Bible says it. And as if that wasn't enough, Peter goes on to tell the church that, man, not only is Jesus coming back according to the word of God, but notice this, in light of his coming, we are now called, those who are waiting for this second coming are now called to live holy lives while we wait. This is why in uh, verse 2 of chapter 3, 2 Peter chapter 3, he says the commandment of the Lord. Now this again is a reference to the moral norms expected of the believers according to the word of God. In fact, this particular phrase is used over 60 times throughout the New Testament and serves as the basic command to continue to conform in the image of Jesus Christ. In other words, while we are waiting for the second coming of Jesus Christ, we are now called not to just sit in the stands and watch and wait and wonder, but rather we are called to live and grow in a life of holiness. You see, this call to holiness or holy living that Peter references here is exactly what the false teachers were missing. So notice Peter's words here in these first two verses. He says, Christian, hear the words that I am saying to you. Jesus Christ is coming back. This is not a hunch. This is not some sort of miracle prayer at the end of a sporting event. We know it's going to happen because the Bible says it's going to happen. 
And so in light of the teaching of the word, Peter would say, let us continue to live holy lives, speaking and living in the light of the impending return of the king, patiently waiting for him to come, but living faithfully according to his will by his word. So Christians, can I ask you this morning, are we together patient in our waiting Do we speak and live in light of the second coming or do we look more and more like the world and thus we are now beginning in our actions and our words, beginning to forget our first love, which is and should be Jesus Christ. Peter moves from there into verses three and four and he gives us our second point of why we should know that Jesus Christ is coming. So so it's not only that the word says that he's coming back, but he says this, he says, listen, we know that Jesus is coming back because God's enemies continue to scoff at his second coming. In other words, if Peter were in modern day terms, he'd probably say something like this, listen, haters are gonna hate, right? I mean, he, he, I think I'll give him credit for coining that phrase before I would Taylor Swift, but that's a different conversation for another day. So notice these verses, Peter, after testifying that the word of God says that he is coming again, he now reveals to the church that critics and skeptics will always be there and they will always be ready to dismiss the second coming of Christ. He says in verse three, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, makes sense, following their own sinful desires. Notice that Peter wants the church to know and understand that in the last days, these days that exist between the resurrection and the ascension and the second coming of Jesus Christ, there will be false teachers who come seeking to separate believers from the truth of the word of God. And as Peter has already told us in 2 Peter chapter 2, this should be no surprise to the church. So Peter warns the church about the agenda of these false teachers He says that they want to deny the second coming of Christ in order to continue to indulge in their sinful desires. You see, what Peter's describing in this moment is actually spiritual warfare. This is something that that many modern churches are now trying to overlook or better yet downplay. They don't want to talk about it. But this is exactly what Peter's describing. See, Peter's not describing these false teachers or scoffers as those who are smarter than Christians or have more rationale. But rather what he's describing is he's describing a people who have been deceived by the enemy and now they seek to satisfy their sinful flesh. Ultimately, they are now opposed to God's judgment toward their lifestyles. These are the same people that say things to us today like, who are you to judge? These are the same people today who say that God is love. And they fail to talk about the fact that it's also God who is Just. These are the same people who, when we say, hey, we believe this because this is what the word of God says, will look at us and say to us, well, God accepts all, so who are you to condemn? You see, the the contempt for holiness and living their own life reveals their skepticism about Jesus Christ's return. Layman terms. These scoffers, And people today do not believe that Jesus Christ is coming back. And as if that wasn't enough, Peter tells us that they continue to slide into questioning God even further. He says in verse 4 that they will say, where is the promise of his coming? 
In other words, Peter now teaches that these false teachers believed that it was past time for Jesus to return. And since it was past time, it can be assumed that he was not returning at all. And Peter says, and they continue. Verse 4, for ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Peter says that the false teachers are now claiming that since there had been no interruption to their lives, it would be chaotic to think, believe, or even imagine that Jesus Christ would come again and ultimately disturb life as they know it. I mean, think about this for a moment. For the one who does not believe in the return of Christ, it makes sense to the enemies of God to continue walking through their life in sin with no consequence because it does not make sense for God to show up in the blink of an eye and turn the world upside down with his judgment. In other words, Peter is saying of these scoffers, they are saying it hasn't happened and it won't happen. And we see this same thing today as more and more people continue to, de- to, to deny Jesus Christ. And now we see more and more people denying any type of divine intervention throughout the history of the world. People are doing things and saying things, and I'm going to put this in quotations, in the name of science. Not science's fault. I think science actually points to God. I think God gave us science to show us His beauty. But they're saying and doing things in the name of science in order to refute the account of creation or to refute the, uh, the account of the flood. And so Peter says, Christians, beware of these scoffers today because we know that the word says that Jesus Christ is coming back. We also know that the word tells us that more and more people will come along to mock his return. They will do this by denying any intervention of God in human history. And when this happens, do not allow their words or do not allow their their arguments to cause your faith to waver. Rather, Peter teaches us, turn back to the word. Because it's in the word you will find what is true. This This leads Peter to his third point which is found in verses 5 through 10, where Peter now tells us that not only does the word of God tell us that Jesus will return, but in light of the scoffers, we can know that Jesus is coming back. He says, thirdly, that we know that Jesus is coming back because God's nature supports that Jesus is coming back. Again, if you look at 5 through 10, particularly phrases found in verse 5 and verse 8, we see they overlook, and then he says to the believers, do not overlook. Notice that Peter teaches that these false teachers overlook who God is and what God has done and what God is doing, and they will continue to overlook what God will do as they move into the future. Whereas Peter says to the church, remember the nature, or better yet, remember the attributes, remember the characteristics of God. Why? Because in his nature, we see that God will keep his promise to return. And then in the text, Peter gives us four parts to God's nature that we now need to remember that point us to the fact that he will return. He begins in verses 5 through 7 with what he began in verse 1. He says to the the believers, he says, God is sovereign. We know that God is sovereign. Now notice, notice here that Peter spends most of his time in the text on this one particular point because this is the very foundation of the nature of God. 
The fact that God is sovereign is the foundation of every other nature and every other characteristic that we know to be true about God. And so here Peter teaches that God has sovereignly manipulated creation in the past in order to accomplish His purpose. Peter reminds the church that the false teachers were seeking to maintain the notion that God has not ever intervened in the history of mankind. Thus, he will never intervene in mankind as we move into the future. And Peter says, listen, it is foolishness to think that we have moved along in history and remained the same without some sort of intervention from God. Thus, our future will not remain like our present. In fact, verse 5, he says that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. Notice what Peter is teaching us about the creation account from God. God, in his sovereignty, brought order or brought the order of creation out of the chaos of a water-covered world. And God was the one who put the water there. Peter is literally referencing us back to Genesis chapter 1 when God separated the waters from the sky and then when God separated the waters from the dry ground. You see, the scoffers had already ignored that God has already interrupted history when he set creation in order from chaos. How else can this be explained? Verse 6, he continues, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Now again, here's Peter talking of God, talking of God's sovereignty. He says that the same God who brought order from chaos by separating the water is now the same God who in Genesis 7 sent order into chaos in the form of flooding the world during Noah's day. I mean, think about this for a moment. The element of water... One element. It's the same element that was used to bring order to the world was now by Genesis chapter 7 being used to destroy it. Peter gives us this story not to show us a natural disaster that took place in the history of the world, but rather he is showing us that this was the judgment of God upon the world. In other words, God has intervened. God has interrupted. You see, this is a foretaste of what God will do when Christ comes in final judgment. The continuity in the world that the scoffers and false teachers were desperately holding on to had been interrupted with a catastrophic event already. But then notice where Peter goes from there. From verse 7, he ties it all together. He says this, But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Notice here that Peter teaches another judgment is coming. And oh, by the way, it's not going to be with water. Why? Because God promised he wouldn't do that. Shh, don't tell him. Don't tell him. Rainbows, don't tell him. Rather, instead of using water this time, Peter says the time of the Lord will come. And when it comes, he will judge the world with fire. 
And I'm going to tell you, this is one of the few times in the, in the New Testament where we read that the world will be destroyed by fire. Now, the Old Testament actually mentions fiery judgment, and it's actually in reference to the destiny of the people. So notice how the Old Testament and the New Testament all of a sudden paralleling each other here. And so here was Peter's point. Peter says that when God comes to interrupt creation again with the second coming of Christ, it's going to be too late for the false teachers. It's going to be too late for those who follow him. They will be cast out. And all wickedness and all sin will be destroyed by fire. Peter is again showing that God's sovereignty, God's sovereign plan is being revealed in his word. He showed us it would happen back in Genesis. He said it would happen in the Gospels. And here is Peter saying it again. He is coming and he will judge the world with fire. God is sovereign and his will is going to be done. He moves on from there into verse 8 and he tells us that not only is God sovereign, but now notice what he says. He says that God is also Timeless. Now here Peter's referencing back to Psalm 90 to remind the church that since God is all-knowing and that God is ever-present, God views all of time as equally near. Look with me in chapter 3, verse 8 of 2 Peter. He says, with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. By the way, didn't we have a 90 song that sang about that? I think so. Some of you don't know what I'm talking about. Some of us will help you out later. Here's what Peter is saying. Since God transcends time, it is irrelevant to mark time on when he will return. The passing of time does not ever diminish God in any way. I want to go ahead and tell you, for all the prophets who are on YouTube right now, and I use the term prophet loosely, who are telling us that in the next year or two or three, God is coming back. They don't know. You know why? Because in 1988, there was a book that came out that said 88 reasons why Jesus would return in 1988. Guess what? He didn't come back. So you know what this author did? He wrote a sequel. It's called 89 Reasons Why Jesus Christ Will Return in 1989. And guess what? He was wrong. If I'd have, in my young age, if I'd have been smarter, I'd have wrote a book that said, Jesus Christ is coming. Chapter one. And we don't know the day or the hour. Period. Almost the end. Second sentence. But he is coming. The end. References. The Bible. Roughly 50 pages of references at that point. Could have been a bestseller. No. I'll take rich in grace, Mom, but I appreciate that. You set the bar too high for that one. Listen to this. Since God alone is sovereign... We can rest in the fact that not only is he sovereign, but he's also timeless. Thus, we should never be concerned, or concerned about the perceived delay of the Lord. 
I mean, like like Peter, we 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 live in the knowledge that Jesus Christ is coming. I mean, we live in the knowledge that that Jesus Christ is is coming soon. So so what I want to encourage us with today is this: let's live in the tension of of just knowing that it could be near. Or knowing that it could be years from now or decades from now. Now, again, I recognize that this is something that we don't want to hear today. We, we hope that his, his return is imminent. We'd love for it to be right now at the end of the service. That would be, that would be wonderful, would it not? But, but it may not be. But the reality is, as Christians, we don't need to get impatient with that. We don't, need to, we don't need to look at that and go, well, when is Jesus Christ coming? Okay, We don't need to, we don't need to treat the second coming of Christ like we treat our, our drive-throughs right now. I mean, how many of us get in the drive-thru, place our order, see four cars in front of us, and we get frustrated because there's that one car that's in front of us that's slow, and they're getting bag after bag after bag after bag after stuff. And we want to look at them and like, what is wrong with them? I used to say that same thing, but then I became them. And yet we still grow impatient. So here are the words of Peter when he says this. He says, Christian, don't grow impatient. God is timeless. Hold on to this truth. Listen to this truth that Peter gives us. If a day is like a thousand years to God and a thousand years is like a day to God, then Peter's literally encouraging the believers by saying that it's only been a couple days since he was here the first time. So live in the tension and patiently wait for the Lord. Oh, by the way, shameless plug, we're going to talk more about this tonight at five o'clock. You should come, but for the sake of time, I can't. Moving on. Verse nine. Peter not only teaches us that God is sovereign and that God is timeless, but now he's going to teach us in verse 9 that the fact that God is timeless also points to the fact that God is merciful. You see, some of the scoffers were saying that this delay by God was a sign that he could not nor would not fulfill his promise. And so verse 9, Peter responds to that by saying, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but rather he is patient toward you. Now this... This again goes back to what Peter just said about God being sovereign and God being timeless. Peter is now teaching us that God doesn't count time like we do. And since he doesn't count time like we do, then obviously he is not slow in keeping his promise. Notice that Peter teaches that, that in this quote-unquote delay that the, these false teachers keep wanting to refer to, he says, no, God is actually patient towards you. In other words, it is God who is long-suffering when it comes to his people. In fact, this is, this is where we can look back to the Old Testament and we read the words in Exodus 34 and number 16 that says the Lord is compassionate and he is gracious and he is slow to anger. This is what Peter is talking about. You see, it's in this text and in God's patience and long-suffering, Peter teaches us that God's motive reveals his mercy. Notice again, verse 9, he says, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Notice what Peter's saying. God's supposed delay actually highlights the very heart of God. It is God's desire to see his people saved from his wrath that leads to eternity in hell. So think about this. What the false teachers labeled as a delay reveals God's patience that should lead them to repentance. Mistaking God's patience for incapacity or or impotence, if you will, is a grave error with eternal consequences. Do not, according to Peter, miss the point of God's mercy. 
You see, it's God's mercy that's revealed in how he is waiting for those who have yet to believe. It is God in his mercy who is waiting on more people to repent. He is waiting in his mercy for more people to trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And it is God in his patience that is revealing his mercy that he wants to see more people avoid eternal condemnation. And so as believers in Jesus Christ at this moment, we must do our part as well. We need to be pleading with unbelievers not to presume on the kindness of God, but rather to know that God is patient and God is merciful because he desires for them to repent and trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. But again, Peter is not done here in talking about the the nature of God. He has said, listen, we know that Jesus is coming because God is sovereign. We know he's coming because God is timeless. We know that he's coming because God is merciful, merciful. But then notice what he says in verse 10. Peter now teaches us, and oh, by the way, God is also just. You see, Peter now completes his response to these false teachers by reminding the church that God and God alone is the righteous judge. Verse 10, he says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Now, in other words, Peter is telling us that the timing of God's return will be unexpected. We will be unprepared for that moment. We will never see it coming. We will be given no warning of his return. The day of his return will come quickly. And when he returns, it will have a catastrophic effect on the world. In fact, Peter describes it in these ways. He says, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. Now, this word roar is actually kind of a a colorful phrase here that can mean anything from the crack of a whip to the hissing of an animal to the swishing sound of an arrow in flight to the rushing of mighty waters. Whatever it is, it's going to be heard and it's going to be sudden. Peter continues, and he says, And the heavenly bodies, when Christ returns, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. In other words, Peter says that the heavens and the elements of the earth shall be no more. In other words, on that day, they will be utterly destroyed. But he's not done. He says, again, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Again, the physical elements of the earth will be wrecked. And on that day, the wicked will be destroyed. Judgment and execution will come. You see, here's the truth that Peter is trying to communicate to the church as he encourages them to remember that Jesus Christ is coming back. He says to them, listen, God's judgment will be swift. It will end with a definitive announcement of a just and fair penalty upon mankind's sin. The world will pass away, mankind's sin will be exposed, and God will bring about his righteous judgment. Now again, Peter is not saying this to scare the believers, but rather he's seeking to remind them that when God's righteous judgment comes, it is going to be fair in light of his justice. In other words, as believers in Christ, because of the atoning work of Jesus Christ, we will have justice because the just God will look upon us with grace and mercy and say, not guilty, for your sins have been forgiven. Christian, the nature of God, his characteristics, and his attributes. Only four of them covered in this passage, but still, this nature of God reveals that Jesus Christ is coming back. 
Are you ready? Do we see, as we walk through our days, do we see God's characteristics and attributes at work? Do we see his patience and his mercy, even in our own lives? Are we prepared for his judgment? Do we look upon the Lord and say, God, I don't understand your timing, but I know this. You are perfect, and therefore I know that your timing is perfect. You see, time is ticking. And none of us know the hour. But while we have time, Peter encourages the believers by saying, share about the goodness and the grace and the mercy of our great God. Now again, I want to say to you, I don't know about you or your heart, but in my heart, I long for the return of Jesus Christ. I am tired. I am tired of seeing pain. I am tired of seeing heartache. I am tired of weeping with people who are hurting. And I will continue to do so, but I will continue to be tired. I am tired of sickness. I am tired of death. I'm tired of violence. I'm tired of evil. I am ready for for all of this to be wiped away by God's consuming fire. I mean, I'm with Peter at this point. I'm, I'm with John at this point at the end of Revelation when Jesus says to him, and behold, I am coming soon. I'm with John when he says, yes and amen, Lord, come quickly. But the reality is he hasn't returned yet. And so the world continues to grow impatient. The world continues to to trash what it is that we treasure. And if we're not careful, we can begin to doubt as well. So Peter, in God's sovereignty, seeing the same concern for the church in his day, now encourages the church to remember the word of God. He encourages the church to to remember that the scoffers will be there. They're always going to be there until the end of days. He encourages the church to remember the nature of God, remember the characteristics and the attributes of God. And he says to the church, listen, all of these things reveal that Jesus Christ is coming back. So in the time that we've been given, with those who are living amongst us, living around us, mocking and scoffing at our great God, as those covered in the grace and the mercy of the goodness of God. My prayer is that we would speak and live in such a way as to never forget that Jesus Christ is coming back. To God be the glory for what he has done, for what he is doing, and for what he will do. Praise God.